Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. This week I'm thrilled to share my conversation with a dear friend of mine, Anne Brand. Anne is a certified mindfulness teacher through the Mindfulness Training Institute and the International Mindfulness Teachers Association. She's also an associate lecturer in the College of Arts and Human Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Stout. Anne holds a doctorate in psychology from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill with an emphasis on child development and families. And since receiving her mindfulness teacher training in 2014, Anne has made it her life's work really to introduce the practice of mindfulness to students, teachers, administrators, educational leaders, as well as um, the community in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And so I think Anne has this beautiful grounded approach to mindfulness. In our conversation today, we talk about grief and the holidays and how mindfulness can really be a tool to help us through challenging times. And so I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Without further ado, here is Anne Brand. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Wholehearted Healer. I'm so grateful you're here. This week you're in for a treat. I have on as my guest, Anne Brand. Anne and I um, have been friends for a really long time. We moved in across the street from one another in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I guess about 15 years ago now. We moved away five years ago, but um, Anne was one of those very special friends in my life. We sort of raised our kids together and it's been really fun to watch her trajectory um, as she has become a really amazing mindfulness teacher, just doing great work in the world. She has been um, sharing mindfulness with the community and has helped many people begin their mindfulness practice. She has been um, a real advocate for mindfulness for teachers as a tool to help them in their work. Um, and she is just a she is someone who um, shares a lot of wisdom in the world and in my life. So, Anne, I wanted to say welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much, Avian. I'm just delighted to be here. Yeah, it's it's sort of fun. We were talking before we got on that it's it's interesting when you interview a friend because there's so many things that we could talk about. But, um, you know, this episode, we're recording it in November and it will likely air end of November, early December. And I think um, paradoxically, this time of um, holidays and and all of this family together time and the messages in the media are that we're supposed to be really happy and connected. And and for many people, we are, you know, it is it is a time of um of connection and joy. And but for some people it's it's a really hard time. And so I thought you have um a lot of wisdom, I feel like, surrounding grief. And I wondered if maybe we could focus on that today during the podcast. That would be lovely. I agree with you um, that this time of year is a time of both joy and sadness uh, for many of us for different reasons. And there's so many expectations about how we should feel. And when our our like emotions and thoughts and the things that are rising for us at this time don't line up with what we're being told is the way to be. It could be really um, difficult. Yeah. And so can you maybe just share a little bit about your experience with grief? Maybe, um, maybe talk a little bit about the loss of your dear mother and, and how that, um, launched you into having to learn about grief. Right. There's nothing about um, 
just being forced to have to face really, really difficult things um, that leads you to some pathways that you never, ever expected (laughs) that you would be going down. And so my mother um, had colon cancer and she was sick for a number of years. And um, we were not living nearby uh, our, my parents at the time. We haven't in many, many years. My husband was in the military and we moved around a lot. And um, at the time that she was uh, dying and in hospice care, um, we were living across the street from each other uh, here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And I was really just doing my best to um, navigate the challenge of having young children and really want to be present for them and also wanting to be with my mother who was dying. And my mom was one of the most compassionate and generous people that I've ever known. And um, she was always very supportive of me um, being here with the kids. And, um, but it was just a constant going back and forth to Michigan and um, just doing the best that I could. And that was in January and February and she died in March. And when she passed away, you know, I went back and we, we did all the things um, to, um, you know, get the visitation ready and plan for her memorial service, which was later in the month. Um, my mom, she was very, um, she didn't want to inconvenience anybody about having her service too soon. So she wanted to make sure that people had plenty of time to plan to arrive. Um, but I was really going through the motions and, you know, I had young children, I think they were second grade and fifth grade. And so there were a lot of demands on my time and attention there and tending to their needs. And I was teaching um, at UW Stout at the time as well. And so I had my classes. Um, and so I just went onward. I just marched onward. And, um, you know, people would say to me, wow, it looks like you're doing really well. And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. You know, and um, I've always felt like I need to keep things together. And I'm a psychologist by training. And so like, I should be really able to do this and be really resilient. And so I marched on and I would have little glimmers of grief, um, but I would tamp them down really, really quickly because I didn't, um, I didn't like, I don't have time for this and I'm really okay. And I was really good at convincing myself that I was fine. Um, And it's really interesting that we're speaking in November because, so my mother died in March. And in November, at the beginning of November, I was sitting in church and on All Saints Day. And in our church on All Saints Day, they read um, a list of names of all the people from the church who've died in the last year, the new saints. And as I was sitting there listening to this, I just had this realization that my mother's name was being read in a church, in her church. Mm-hmm. that morning. Um, and I just started crying and I didn't stop for about two weeks, I think. And I still remember sitting on your front porch with Anita, one of our other friends and neighbors. And it was a beautiful, unseasonably warm November day. And we were sitting on the front steps and um, either one of you on either side of me. and it was after this All Saints Day when I just really started to break open with my grief and just be very overwhelmed. And I remember sitting there and feeling like I can't feel anything. Like I felt so disconnected and both of you were so kind and loving. And like I was having difficulty accepting your kindness and compassion for me. Um, I felt very just um, numb. And I was, I realized I couldn't feel like the presence of God in my life. I couldn't feel this warmth and care and love from my friends. I could feel nothing. Like I had just shut everything down. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it was at that point that I recognized I really needed some support and being with my grief. I had no idea how to do it. Just no clue. Um, and was recognizing that my avoidance 
of my experience of grief was starting to negatively impact my life. I mean, I was going through the motions, but that was it. I wasn't experiencing anything. And I, um, it was starting to really impact my relationships, my friends and my family. I still remember my daughter saying, mom, you're not very happy, are you? And like, when you're like 10 year old says that to you, it's a real wake up call. And so it was from that point that I recognized I needed some support and um, it was terrifying, frankly, to call up a grief counselor, a counselor to really move toward my grief. And um, I didn't really have any idea how to do it. And just saying some of the things out loud was so scary and um, painful to do. And it allowed me to have the space where I could begin to move towards the things that were um, really difficult, really painful, but that needed to be seen, experienced, and held um, in order for me to um, begin to move through my grieving experience and become more familiar with it so that I could really incorporate it into, I guess, into my life in a way that um, was supportive and caring and not so scary. Thank you for sharing that, Anne. And you you say something really interesting to me because you you said a number of times that you just had no idea how to mm-hmm. grieve. And it's, I think it's this misnomer in our relate in our in our society that somehow when we get to these really difficult moments, somehow we'll just know what to do, right? You're a trained psychologist. <laughs> um, right. And you didn't know what to do. And so, mm-hmm. and I think that in in societies, in more tribal societies, when when the world was not, you know, 50,000 people, but maybe 300 people, we were held in our grieving differently. Like I'm not, I don't think that we're necessarily meant to grieve alone. I think that we're meant to have help from people who um, have either been through it or who are grieving with us or who just know a little bit more the stages and what to do. And so I think that is such a key point because I think that especially now I feel like with death kind of hidden and um, and just society changing, especially after the pandemic, I think there's this sense that like, we're supposed to know what to do and we're probably supposed to do it alone. Right. And there's a couple things that come up for me as you share this. One is that I was getting a lot of um, feedback from people about how great I was doing. And really through no fault of their own, they were being very supportive. And like you said, because we have this expectation, I think in our culture that, you know, you take a couple of weeks and then you just move on with life. And that's how you grieve uh, because we don't have any rituals really in place for the re- the real um, true and embodied experience of grief as it unfolds, because it unfolds over. I mean, it's still unfolding for me. Um, you know almost 13 years after my mother passed away in a different way, because I can relate to it differently now, but um, it's not something that goes away, but we don't have any, yeah, we don't really have tools to deal with it. So I was getting a lot of feedback that I was doing well, like, Oh, you're, you seem like you're doing really well, or like, you're fine. And plus, cause I went back to work and I was doing all the PTO things and all this. So um, I was fine. I was fine. And I had an expectation for myself that I should be fine. Like, like you said, I'm a trained psychologist. Like I should not, you know, I should be okay. I should be fine. But I get these little glimmers. And I remember one where um, it was in sep- August or September because the kids were getting ready to go back to school. And we were having um, a Percy Jackson party at one of our friend's house, one of our neighbor's house. And I remember going into the bathroom to use the bathroom and just feeling like, everybody's acting like things are normal and they are not normal. You know, and this was about four months after my mom had passed away. And it was just like, I had this little insight, but then I just pushed, I pushed it away. 
I pushed it away. Um, and because I was fine, I was okay. And it really, um, there's nothing like suffering that leads you to, to try something that you don't understand. (laughs) And I think that that's what happened with me with mindfulness practice is I was suffering so much and I didn't understand mindfulness at all um, on a personal level, Mm -hmm. Um, but I was really, really struggling. And so when my grief counselor said to me, have you ever heard of mindfulness practice? And I said, well, you know, I'm a psychologist and I can set you some studies on how it impacts the brain um, (laughs) because I found that incredibly fascinating. Um, I had no idea what it was like. And a lot of it was because I didn't think it was available to me. So I first learned about mindfulness practice um, in the course of some of the research that I was doing on emotion and how emotion develops in adolescence. Um, way back when I, I used to work in a lab at the National Institute of Mental Health, and we studied the development of emotions in adolescence. My whole dissertation was on how parents and caregivers socialize emotional experience and expression in adolescents and, and kids. And I remember coming across a study that was um, looking at mindfulness and emotion regulation. And it was a it was a brain study. So they were looking at people's brains in a functional MRI while they were practicing mindfulness and really honing in on the parts of our brain we use to regulate our emotions. And they saw that people who had mindfulness practices had moral, more neural connectivity um, and more activity in those parts of the brain. And it matched behaviorally. They were better at regulating their emotions. And I remember, this was long before I even considered practicing mindfulness. And I remember thinking, that's just so remarkable that a behavioral practice can change how our brains function. Um, But it never even in a million years crossed my mind that that would be a practice for me. Why do you think that that is? Why do you say like, it wasn't available to me? So I see, you know, I've always seen myself as a very um, driven, organized, motivated, type A personality. I have a very busy mind. There's a lot going on up there. And I love my thinking mind. Like, I love knowing things. I love learning things. I like to categorize things. I just find it fascinating how our mind works. Um, And so I thought, you know, my, I think it's mostly because I didn't really understand what mindfulness practice was, but I thought, oh, it's so amazing that people can follow their breath and find clarity and calm. But I just don't think I could do that. Like I could never shut off my thoughts which is a myth about mindfulness. That's not what it's about. Um, I just didn't think I could do it. Yeah. So before you really needed it, before that moment where you kind of like were on your knees, where you said like, well, I'll try Mm -hmm. anything. It was almost like you just didn't have time for it. Like it wasn't important enough or it didn't rank in your, in your list of all the things that you had to do and wanted to do. And because I think there's a lot of people listening who are feeling that way about mindfulness. So I think that's a really key point because um, at this point, there are so many studies. I mean, so many studies showing what that study years ago showed you about mindfulness. So there's actually no debate that it can help our brains regulate. It can help us in so many ways. And yet I think there are so many of us that are like, well, yeah, if I ever have a day where I have just wide open spaces and I have, you know, we don't prioritize it for whatever reason. Right. Absolutely. And I, I found it incredibly fascinating because I loved learning about it. And it's just funny because mindfulness kept coming up in other ways. So I was teaching in the school of education at university of Wisconsin stout. And I started reading about mindfulness and education and I love data. So this data was really fascinating to me. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I just didn't think it was available to me. I didn't, I didn't really understand how it could help me either because I thought I was fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was doing fine. Um, and it wasn't really until I was suffering so much that I allowed myself to, to take another look at it. And I, and I think it was for me, the data also was important 
because sometimes it's helpful to know why you're doing something, um, at least for me. Um, and so when I, when I decided to start mindfulness practice, I like to learn about things by reading about them. Mm-hmm. So I got a book. Um, and I basically, and the, and the book that I use, I used was real happiness by Sharon Salzberg and Sharon Salzberg's a very gifted mindfulness teacher. Um, but it was, the book is set up like a syllabus, you know, there's like week one, week two, I was right up my alley. Right in your wheelhouse and Rand. Yep. Yeah. And, um, and so that's how I started to practice, but it wasn't until I, um, was like you said, on my knees. And can you remember, it's probably hard for you to piece together how it helped you in the beginning, but for someone who may be hanging on the words of your story, who may be in grief, who may be looking for a tool, how did it help you? How did it help you? I think at first it can be um, not always really clear how mindfulness practice is a benefit to us. Um, but what some of those early sort of fundamental practices of mindfulness of following my breath, relating to my experience with kindness of compassion, even just in the five minutes of mindful breathing that I was doing, began to um, help me begin to relate to my experience differently and see it more clearly um, and notice um, what was taking me away from being with my experience in that moment, whether it was a, um, a harsh thought, a discomfort in the body. Um, And I think that that's also something that was, uh, new to me, this, this practice of paying attention to my body. So as somebody who loves their thinking mind, um, I was very familiar with my mind, although I wasn't that familiar with, um, how hard I was on myself. That was also something that came to me in this practice. I really began to see how I was really expecting myself to measure up in ways that were unrealistic. Um, but the the practice of mindfulness is an embodied practice. All the tools that we use to come into our present moment experience and help to anchor us in our present moment experience are part of our body, our breath, sensations in the body, our sensory experience. And you know, I'd spend most of my life with my body just to carry my head around. I, you know, yeah, I exercised and whatever, but I didn't really pay attention to the wisdom of my body. It's such a, another important source of information. And the practice of mindfulness gave me some, some instructions on how to do that. Like how to begin to pay attention to my present moment experience and how to be able to pay attention to my body. Like what sensations to notice with my breath coming in and out of the body or in a body scan, just Noticing what's arising without judging it, without expecting it to be different, just welcoming it with kindness um, and care for what I was experiencing. And it it was painful because grief can be a very painful emotion, like a physically painful emotion. And it offered me a very kind, uh, generous way to move towards these difficult experience. Like mindfulness is about moving towards your experience. Um, and difficult experiences like grief, for example, I mean, it's our natural inclination to not want to move toward it, mm-hmm. to move as far away from it as possible. And our culture supports that. So it was kind of countercultural to move toward it. Um, but the practice itself of Uh, paying attention to my embodied experience with kindness and coming back again and again, no matter how many times I got distracted, which was a lot because I have a very busy mind. um, That was the practice. Um, 
And it was something that builds over time because as we practice relating to our experience with kindness and care, interest, curiosity, um, when we're on our cushion, so to speak, like sitting, you know, paying attention to our breath with intention, we begin to practice those skills so that they're available to us in the rest of our life. So like I remember a time and it was actually around the holidays um, when I was driving to pick up the roast. Um, I just had this wave of grief move over me because it reminded me of Christmas dinners with my family, with my mom. And I noticed it like I could feel it in my body because I'd been practicing paying attention to my embodied experience. And our thoughts are part of our embodied experience. I, they're not separate. And that was also a new revelation to me. Um, but I remember noticing that and I just pulled over um, in a safe place and just allowed myself to feel it and to recognize the, the sensations of grief and the tightness in my chest and the tears coming um, and to recognize, oh, there's grief. And then to allow myself to have it, like, of course, I would be feeling a wave of grief wash over me when I'm remembering these emotions, these experiences, you know, with my family. And that wasn't the only thing that was present. There was also warmth and um, just love for my mom and the traditions that she helped establish in our family. And so then I could begin to recognize that all of this is present. As you move toward your experience, get curious, you begin to see that um, it's not just one thing. Our experience is not a dichotomy. It's it's full and it's rich. It's everything. Um, which really relates to how when I was trying to suppress my grief, I couldn't, I couldn't feel anything. And in order to allow myself to feel the joy. Um, contentment, satisfaction, all those beautiful qualities that were present in my life, I had to practice moving towards the difficult ones too. And mindfulness tools gave me those skills. So it was through like a consistent practice, even just small little bits, starting with five minutes, seemed like an eternity at first. Um, Yeah, because... I think what you were talking about first is, you know, how, when grief would rise for you and you'd stuff it back down, it was almost like, I mean, I've been there too, where life is too busy to deal with what really wants to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. And so we think that if we, there's this thinking that is to our detriment, that if we look at it, if we pause and actually take the time to unpack it, somehow it's like Pandora's box and we won't be able to put the lid back on. And so I love how you describe this because it's showing that the way through is the way. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that doesn't make, that did not make sense to me um, before I just really broke open in the way that I did. Um, Cause it seems like it would, it would make sense to stuff the difficult stuff, but um Emotions are like whack-a-mole, you know, they just need to be experienced or they're going to pop up somewhere else in a way that's really unskillful or that could cause harm in some way. Um, They need to be seen and felt and experienced. And um, by, by, by getting interested and curious, um, it gives you a lot more um, freedom to be with them. Yeah. And that grief is one of the toughest emotions and we, and we can grieve the loss of a parent or a child, but there's a lot of grief in our lives. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're human, we're likely grieving some loss or some small death or some change as we get older or our kids get older and our roles change or the earth changes or who is in political power changes. There's all these ways that we can grieve. And so I just think that your um, your story with mindfulness, and then it should be noted that Anne went on to 
um, continue to practice herself, but then can then offering this tool in the town that we lived in and for teachers and is now offering, um, you know, this online as well. And so can you talk about that, how that, that experience kind of changed the trajectory really of your career and your life somewhat? It really did. Cause I think if somebody had told me 15 years ago that I would be a mindfulness teacher, I'd be like, what I'm going to do what it wouldn't have made any sense to me. Um, and and knowing what I do about my own practice and about mindfulness in general, um, we really, it really is the arising of our own experience with the practice that helps us to understand how we might bring it into other areas of our life. So I knew a lot about mindfulness from like the research perspective. Um, and then with my own personal experience of, um, the the calm and clarity and tools that mindfulness gave me to be with my own grief and difficult experiences, I began to get get curious about how I could bring this into the work that I did with with educators. And so I was teaching in the School of Education at Stout and um, was beginning to recognize the uh, the stress and the burnout that educators in our state of Wisconsin were experiencing, you know, in the early around 2010, 11. And um, because of my own experience of using this practice to really help me be with stress and difficulty and pain, I thought, you know, I think this would be a really, really beneficial practice to integrate into teacher education. But I was hesitant to do it um, because it seems, um, I don't know, just it seemed odd to me as, you know, somebody who came up through academia um, to like pause in a classroom to breathe. Um, But now everything we know about the brain, it's like, well, of course. Um, But I was really hesitant and felt uncertain about bringing it in. And I remember going to a mindfulness and education conference, I think it was in 2012. And one of the sessions I was in, the facilitator was asking about people who were there, if they had brought mindfulness into their classrooms. And I was teaching, you know, at the higher ed level at that point. So, and most of the students I was working with were going to be future school psychologists. And, um, and I said, no, I'm, I haven't. And I remember the facilitator looking at me and saying, well, has this practice benefited you? I said, oh yeah, so much. Well, why wouldn't you offer that to your students? I was like, oh, right. And so I just started with little bits of um, like two minutes of mindful breathing to start the semester. And I know that or each class period. And I know and I just invited the students to keep an open mind and just see what they notice, because that's what mindfulness practice is. Paying attention to your experience without judgment and just seeing what you notice and being curious. And um, they thought I was it was odd at first, but then they became started to really appreciate it. And it was from there that I thought, well, I really want to do some teacher training. And so I went and got teacher training through the Mindfulness Training Institute. Um, But mindfulness is one of those things that you teach from your own practice. And I remember one of my my teachers in the training, Martin Aylward, saying, we teach from the goodness of our practice. And I didn't know what that meant when I first got through. I'm like, what is he talking about? Um, but it's our own experience with mindfulness practice that supports us in skillfully bringing it to others. And, you know, like you can't teach someone to swim if you don't know how to swim. Yeah. And it's a very similar, um, it's a very similar thing. And so my own personal experiences supported me so much in in finding ways to skillfully integrate it into education and very in many different um, formats um, in a way that invited future teachers, practicing teachers, administrators um, to give it a try and see what they notice. Um, And it's been really, really um, wonderful to work with all these educators over the years that I've been doing it. Um, 
and see how mindfulness is beginning to flourish in some of the schools here in the Chippewa Valley. So it's very exciting. I'm doing a little work with that here in Colorado Springs as well with teachers. And I think it's really interesting. Maybe it's just among the helping professions, or maybe it's just a human thing that we want to learn it for others. You know what I mean? Like we want to, oh, this, my students will love this. You know, mm-hmm. I think what you point out is that you can't, you have to, this is a practice. It's called a practice for a reason. Right. Um, and so I think you've been really skillful at um, really helping teachers and helping, you know, non-teachers explore. Can you talk a little bit about what it's been like to teach um, just the public who have come to your classes? And, and your class is usually, I think, six weeks, right? And, and the turnaround mm-hmm. the difference that you see in someone who's just doing a practice for six weeks. Right. It's it's really, um, really interesting to support people as they are learning about this practice and trying in their life. Um, and people come to my mindfulness classes for all different kinds of reasons. Um, some people, their doctor recommends it, or um, maybe they have had a loss that they're grieving, or they want to manage their stress better. Um, but coming together um, as a group to learn this practice together, I think people begin to recognize that we all share this common human experience. We all want to be happier and we all want to suffer less. And that is true for every single human being. And then to learn this practice together in a group where you're um, with other people who share this intention of being more present and more engaged in, uh, in your life as a way to support your own well-being, to support your relationships with others, to support you in acting in line with what matters to you and your values, no, no matter what they are. Um, it's really, really beautiful to, to see people from different walks of life and different backgrounds, just coming together around this common intention of wanting to be more present, more available, um, less reactive. Um, it's, it's been, it's been really, really wonderful. And then just to, encourage them um, that this is a, it's a challenging practice to learn in. It's not a complicated practice. Mindfulness is quite simple and it actually uses tools that are available to every single person um, like the breath. I mean, we are, we are designed to have the breath as a way to help us be with our present moment experience and regulate. We carry it with us everywhere we go um, and we forget to use it. Um, so the tools of mindfulness are available to every human, the breath, the body, our senses, being with thoughts and emotions. Um, there's, it's just part of being human. So helping them recognize that using these tools and relating to our experience with more kindness in a different way is going to take some practice because you know, neuroscience tells us that when we use our brain in a certain way, it gets wired in that direction. And if we're wired for distraction or we're wired to move away from difficult things, it's going to take us a while to establish some new neural pathways and um, to bring patience and kindness um, and to recognize that that experience of challenge of moving towards your experience, or even just sitting with a breath for five minutes, um, that challenge that you experience, you're not the only one. You're not alone. Um, And to bring, um, as Sharon Salzberg calls it, a relaxed persistence to this practice of moving toward your experience and relating to it with more care and kindness um, and allowing that you're human and that you have these experiences. And so over the course of six weeks or six sessions, um, just watching people notice um, how challenging it can be and that it's available to them. Like, again, it's not a dichotomy, it's both. 
you know, I've been practicing mindfulness for a while and it's still challenging for me too, you know, to move towards difficult things. Um, and it's possible and it's available to us in every moment. Um, so that's been really, really wonderful to watch this evolve and just little things like, um, people beginning to sleep a little bit better or, um, being a little more aware of their food as they're eating it. I remember one woman coming after we had done some mindful eating together. And then the next session, she said, I just realized that my grandson is mindfully eating when he's like squishing the blueberry, you know, and like smelling it and squishing it and just being able to see how these moments of awareness are available in our daily life. So that this formal practice of intentionally sitting down to practice mindfulness of the breath, of the body is also available in these what informal moments of practice where we notice the sunset and we really stay with it or we tune into our grandson like getting really curious about what he's eating <laughs> um, and paying attention. Uh, and then also those other moments when you are aware, like when you're gardening or um, having a conversation and you really can tell that the other person's paying attention to you and you're really paying attention to the other person. Um, this intention to pay attention with um, care, this mindful awareness helps us to begin to connect the dots to create more of a mindful life. A more, it, it's there, it's available. All of us are already mindful. And with intention, we can become more aware and present in our life as it unfolds. Mm. And so, um, I mean, I, it's just been, you've always been an amazing human and, but it's been remarkable just to see what the mindful life that you have created and the practice and, and the ways that it, um, shows up and unfolds in unexpected ways, you know, like you were saying better sleep, but, um, more contentment, more a, a sense of resiliency so that when hard things come, you have space for them. Mm -hmm. I wonder what you might say to someone who might be listening, who maybe, you know, has lost someone this year or is in a period of loss. And this all sounds great. And maybe they're going to, you know, I'll, we'll talk about your class and other opportunities for, you know, to sit in mindfulness classes, but, you know, as the holidays approach, do you have any practice or tool that, that just might be able to help them through, you know, like you were talking about going to pick up the roast or, you know, when, when something, when like a, a wave rises towards them. Yeah. So mindfulness is a practice that we grow with intention and even small moments of intention can support us in growing this way of relating to our experience. So even if it's something as just pausing for a minute or two to feel your breath or to mindfully uh, with awareness, drink your cup of coffee. I'm just looking at my cup of coffee sitting here um, to bring these moments of pause and also to be very patient with yourself um, in terms of moving towards difficulty. And sometimes it's just a recognition as opposed to a full-on exploration that can bring you um, that moment of ease to support you through. Like for example, sometimes I notice waves of grief arriving, arising or even difficulty that in that moment, I don't have the space to really full-on full on explore. Like I I can't pull the car over or whatever that may be, but just to recognize, ah, there's grief. Um, so that I know that I can come back to it. Or if you move towards something and you're like, well, that feels really painful. I don't know that I have the full capacity to be with that right now, just to say that's painful. And then skillfully distract yourself. Um, that's okay. It's the awareness that, it really supports us, even if we can't 
full on dive into it to really um, move through it all in that moment. And some things can't be, we can't just do it in a moment and be like, well, that's done. Okay. Let's move on. Um, It continues, but just seeing it with care and then also just allowing that, especially around the holidays that um, it's okay if we're not always joyful. Um, that allowing ourselves to be human and experience things as they are rising is one of the most kindness and kind and compassionate things that we can do for ourselves and other people as well. And just acknowledging it, even if you don't really fully explore it, can be enough to like take the edge off. Mm-hmm. Um so that you can be more present to what's happening and maybe even in, engage in a more um, kind and generous way to yourself um, and the people that you're with. It's hard because there's really not a lot of easy answers. I mean, this is this is our work and this is our practice. And this being human is um, can be really difficult sometimes. I think just that aspect of patience and kindness has made such a huge difference for me too. I, I'm not, I have not always been very patient with myself. So that's been huge. And I, and, you know, going back to something else you said that when you're, you know, if you're listening and you just feel numb, mm-hmm. first of all, that, you know, before mindfulness, you had someone to walk, to guide you, right. You had a grief counselor. So sometimes right. it's that. Um, to even get to the tools, we need some help that we don't mm-hmm. have to be alone. And then I loved what you said about really, you know, to experience the highs, we have to be willing to feel it all. Right. This plane of existence. Mm-hmm. And then perhaps it's just that. And that the more that we're willing to feel, the more we'll feel everything. Yeah. You know, and like, toddlers come in knowing how to do that. They right? do like the biggest meltdown. And then, you know, five minutes later, they're having a blast laughing about something. And so there's probably some wisdom there too. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and to recognize that we have this capacity, like you said, we knew how to feel our full experience at one point in our life. That's how we came. We came wired that way. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a lot of remembering. It's interesting because um, the Pali language, uh, which is the language that the Buddha spoke, the word for mindfulness is sati, S-A-T-I. And it's been translated as mindfulness, but it also means remembering or recollecting. And that has been such a useful translation for me because it's about remembering to be present. It's about remembering what's a, what's here for us right now, remembering where we are, what we're feeling, what we're noticing. And sometimes when people would ask me, like, I remember this was early on in my practice, probably within the first couple of years. And they would say like, how has mindfulness helped you? And I remember saying, I just feel more like myself. It was really hard for me to to like put a pin in it so much, but I just felt more at home, like more like Anne, like more. And I think it was this recollecting or remembering part of the practice. We're just constantly inviting ourselves to come back to here and now to our present moment experience, to feel what we're feeling, to see what we're seeing, to taste what we're tasting, um, to hear what we're hearing. Um, whether it's um, music or uh, in conversation with a great friend, you know, like to really be here for it um, fully. Um, it It's really made me feel more like myself. And I think when we feel more like ourselves, we invite other people to do that too. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And we could talk, you know this, for hours. So I'm going to start to land this plane just for this episode. (laughs) But if someone's listening and they're like, you know, I'm going to do something about this. I want to learn more about mindfulness. 
Um, I know that you have those lucky enough to live near you in person in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, you have an upcoming class, right? And then you're offering an online version. Can you just talk a little bit about your offerings and then maybe just in general, how someone could, you know, learn more about mindfulness? Right. So I am teaching a class here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, um, called the Boundless Heart. And it is a six session course that helps us to cultivate the practices known as the heart qualities of kindness, compassion, appreciative joy or gratitude, and um, steadiness or equanimity. And um, so that I, that class I have coming up in January here in the Chippewa Valley. I am also teaching um, my six session introduction to mindfulness practice online through the Mindfulness Training Institute. And that also is going to be starting in January. Um, and it will be, uh, it's not recorded, we'll, we'll be live together. Um, so that's something that people could access from anywhere. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to do that. And as we um, consider how we might learn more about mindfulness or integrate mindfulness, to really recognize um, like how you best learn. Like I think about myself and I love to read about things before I do them. Um, And so reading a book was really helpful to me. Um, But also there's a lot of um, mindfulness podcasts out there. Like if you type mindfulness into YouTube, you can come up with guided practices to help support you. And it requires some curiosity and open-mindedness. So, um, to just keep an open mind and see what you notice. Even if you just try a, like a two minute mindfulness of the breath practice, maybe setting a small intention to say, I'm going to try two minutes of mindfulness every day for two weeks and see what I notice. Start small um, because it's the it's sort of this consistent practice of continually inviting ourselves to move towards our experience that really helps us begin to see the fruits of the practice over time um, and to require and to and to bring a lot of patience and understanding to yourself. This is difficult to do. And frankly, it's kind of countercultural. Like we are inviting ourselves to seemingly do nothing, although we're not doing nothing. There's so much to pay attention to. Um, and we always feel like we should be doing something else and to just recognize that that's going to come up. And that's part of the practice. Oh, so beautiful. And I think, um, I just think those listening are really going to benefit from, from your presence and your words. I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful for our friendship and, um, I will definitely link, um, your offerings in the show notes and your website and, and, um, how people can find you. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast. Avine, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so grateful for you too. Love you, friend. Love you.